All right, uh, we are wrapping this thing up today. We've spent seven or eight weeks, I think, on marriage. Uh, hope that encouraging for you has been for me, I know. Uh, my goal today is to maybe go a little bit quicker so I can dismiss you guys and let y'all have maybe 15, 20 minutes as a couple to discuss and just pray together. And so I've done a lot of talking over the past few weeks, and so I want to give y'all some time to talk. So let me just jump uh, right in. Uh, today we're talking about this idea of having a lifelong marriage, a, a marriage that lasts. Marriage at its core is a lifelong friendship. And without a lifelong friendship, you will not have a lifelong marriage. I know when there's a problem in a marriage, when I talk to them and all they are, there's this pattern, right? You're married, uh, you're friends. As things get bad, you become partners, right? Like partners slash roommates. And then you become enemies. And so... Um, if we don't maintain that friendship, um, that slope starts going. We move towards being partners and I think sometimes enemies. I remember um, I got married when I was 30 years old. And so I got married later than, than, than some people. And I remember I was the groomsman at like 10 weddings. And it was and like, you know, it was so flipping annoying. Uh, <laughs> like, because, you know. You got to rent the stuff. You got to be there all weekend. And then, you know, the guy you hung out with is now gone. And so <laughs> it's just reality. <laughs> um, and uh, and what's funny is Tracy had a similar experience. Now, she was younger than, than me when we got married. She was 26, 27. I should probably know that. But uh, <laughs> and there's just this sense of like your friends get married and they leave. Right. Have you all experienced that before? Maybe you're the friend that left. <laughs> and, uh, and that's not necessarily a wrong thing. But I remember vividly um, being 28, 27, 29 years old, you know, in my tuxedo. Uh, but just I, I wanted like a, a friend because when you get married, the friendship with your spouse is unlike any friendship you ever have. Right. And there was something in me that, that I wanted that kind of a friend that really is only possible in a marriage. Now, I will say this. I think we can probably do better as a church, as a people, of including single people in the life of our faith family, even um, our families. I read a book recently. Um, it was on parenting. But uh, this guy, he has a wife and young kids, and uh, he had a friend who was single, and he was like in his 30s, and he wanted to be a part of their life. And he was like, well, no, you don't. <laughs> My life is full of uh, annoying dinners and all these. He has little kids. He's like, no, I love. And so they made Monday nights their, I think his friend was named Jeremy, Jeremy night, where Jeremy came and he helped with dinner. He helped with devotions. When they had soccer with the soccer with them, they included this person um, as a part of their family, which is not my talk at all today, but it's a side note. Um, because there is something unique about a marriage friendship. And, and that's what I want to focus on today. And we see the first ever human friendship um, in Genesis 2. Verse 23, we see this here. This is um, after Eve was created. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. It's like the first love poem in, in human history. 
for she was taken from man. In the verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. Yours probably says cleaves. And they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So what you see here is man had no helper. That's the context here. He had no helper, and God said, this is not good. So he created woman. And you can hear the love, the intimacy in the man's voice here. The bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I will call you woman. And then we get this last sentence here on how we leave our parents and we cleave to our spouse. There is this thing that happens. In a sense, we leave this formal life of singleness, this former life of being under our parents' care, and we cleave to this new relationship. That it should feel, in a sense, like you are leaving your family. You are leaving the way you live life, and you should cleave to this new person. When we get married, there is a sense that we're leaving friends behind. We're leaving parents behind. We're leaving siblings behind. It's probably a better way to put that, but we are leaving something and cleaving and building this new lifelong friendship. And this cleaving to our spouse is something that's fully unique to marriage. This human relationship, this union, and it includes the physical, uh, the emotional, the spiritual. And there's all kind of ways that we cleave to our spouse. Of course, the first is the marriage ceremony itself, this beautiful, thought-through picture of the gospel with friends and family present, declaring your love and your union before God and each other. Uh, there is the act of sex that is, of course, this huge cleaving physically with your spouse. There's also, listen, as you have a child with your spouse, whether it, a, adopting or a, a natural birth, there is something about parenting together that like weaves you together in a way like you're in the bunker together when that kid will not stop crying. We, uh, me and Luke met with uh, Rachel Sith. I don't know if y'all know her or not, but they had a baby about a month ago. And she was in that first month baby zone. She was like, we can't do this. They're like, you're going to be okay. But there is something about, I'll never forget being in the hospital room with Tracy. Um, and it was probably not a big deal. But when you're having a baby, it's all a big deal, you know. Like her breathing got low at one moment. I'm like, oh, here we go. Here we go. I'm like, say my prayers over Tracy, you know, all the kind of things. Because there's this thing about being in a hospital and your spouse is, I mean, God bless women for <laughs> all, the, all the things. And um, you're there, and there is something that is um, bonding about that experience. But, but here's, here's my fear, is that we, we have these natural big life moments that bond us together. There's marriage, there's, of course, sex, there's, of course, having children. But if we don't cultivate the small moments of life, the everyday moments of life, I read a quote this week, we all want to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes, right? There's these little things of life that honestly, they shape us. They shape our friendship. They shape our marriage. And we see here in Genesis 2, it's found in two ways. The way that we bond and we cleave. First, we see in verse 24 through 25, this idea of bonding, becoming one flesh, being naked, unashamed. The first thing is this right here, that we need to be fully known. With our spouse, this is a relationship where we must be safe to be fully known. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Remember that like when you're dating? 
and your, your, your spouse progressively learns the worst about you as you date. And, and hopefully before they get married, they hear all the bad things. Sometimes that's not true. It's after the marriage. Oh, I have all this debt. Here you go. I love you. Or I have this kind of thing in my family. But there is this thing that we should be fully known with each other. But also, we're not just fully known. We must be fully loved. And you see this in the words the man says here in this beautiful poem, the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. There is this deep affection. Paul of Ephesians 5 says that our loves for our spouses, our, our, the, the husband's love for their wife is a picture of Christ's love for the church. So for us to move forward in lifelong friendship, we need two things. To be fully known, fully loved. Now listen, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. Like, I don't really know you, so I love the things I think I know about you, right? That's superficial. Now, hear this. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. <laughs> it's that fear of, like, once they really know me, they're going to just be out. I'll, this is off topic for a moment, and I can't do this too much today because I want to finish early is I'll just speak to our men for a moment. I think a lot of men hide in their failures and their shame because they're afraid if they ever expose them to their spouse, their spouse will like not love them or look at them less. First, I'll tell you you're living in darkness, living in a lie. That never goes well. And second, sometimes the most attractive thing you can do is to be honest, open with your wife, to let them see the things that really you struggle with or your fears, because here's this, friends, your wife, your spouse, is your greatest partner. It's your greatest encouragement. And so we must work to be fully known. To be fully known and truly loved is really a lot like being loved by God. And it's what we truly need to thrive and to grow in our life. This is why... People say that marriage is maybe the greatest sanctifying thing we can do in our lives. Because in a marriage relationship, you should be fully known and fully loved. That means you're fully safe to, in a sense, expose your sin, destroy your sin, and become more like Christ. So what does it look like to be fully known? We spent some time talking through this a few weeks ago, this idea of intimacy. But there's two things I want to talk to today that we need to be fully known. First, we have to know, to be, to be fully known, we have to know how to deal with our spouse's sins. If we don't know how to deal with our spouse's sins, here's what I mean. If every time you found out your spouse is a sinner, if you just throw judgment and shame on them, I promise you, you will not fully know your spouse. You will teach your spouse to hide. At the same time, if you are sinning unrepentantly, and like, oh, you got to know me, baby. That is destructive and maybe abusive. And your spouse will never want to know you because he's scared of you. So we have to know how to, do, how to deal with sin. So building a lifelong friendship, especially in a marriage, we have to learn forgiveness and reconciliation, which we, we spent a whole talk on a few weeks ago, which you can go back to. But just to, as a quick recap. Forgiveness and restoration. First step, you must practice all time so we're known. When your spouse sins or you sin, our first response, look up. Look up. 
If you sin, your primary sin is not against your spouse, but is against God, right? Psalm 51, David commits this vile act of adultery and murder. And as he repents, he says, my sin is against you, God. So first, look up. Reconcile to God. This is kind of newsflash. For all things in marriage, before you look to your spouse, look up. Look up. So after you look up and you receive the forgiveness from God, and if you were sinned against, you need to look up as well and ask God to give you a heart of forgiveness, a heart of mercy for your spouse. So you both look up. Second, look back. If we want to move forward in true forgiveness and restoration, we have to look back. How does your past keep informing your present sins? If you've had this addiction for years, you have to reconcile. Listen, a five-year-old sin is not fixed in a five-minute conversation. A five-year-old sin many times requires five years of sanctification. So you have to understand your past to move forward to the present. So we look up, we look back, and third, we move forward. We slowly move forward with restoration. Hear this. Forgiveness and restoration are different things. Forgiveness and trust are different things. We are called to forgive. In a sense, we give them over to God. That is forgiveness, that we, re we release the bitterness we have towards them. We forgive them, but trust is earned over a long period of time. So don't sin against your spouse. And when they forgive you but not trust you yet, you can't get mad at them for not trusting you when you broke trust. Forgiveness can be fast. Trust and restoration is slow. But if we're going to be fully known, this rhythm, uh, this dance of forgiveness and restoration, we must know. It must be normal and common in our house. Because if you are like me, you sin every day. Can you not? If you don't, don't talk to me. I'll get mad at you. And if you sin every day, I promise you, your sin affects your spouse. And the problem is because we don't have a plan of how to deal with forgiveness and restoration, we sin and we hide. We sin and we hide. And we sin and we hide. And we look, I don't know my spouse anymore. So we've walked in sin and shame without walking with forgiveness and restoration. That's, that's the first way that we're fully known in marriage. Second, is that we need consistent quality time. This is 101 right here, right? Consistent quality time. Here's the deal. You forget that your spouse likes you and loves you. Loves you. you forget that every single day on some level. We need consistent quality time to remind us. You cannot be known if you do not spend time. There is no osmosis here. You cannot be known if you do not talk. I mean, we have to talk to, we have to, talk to each other, guys. And, and if you don't know how to do this, that's okay, but learn how to do this is what I'd tell you. Google 50 ways to talk to your spouse, 50 questions for a date night. All that stuff's out there. There, there is no excuse for us anymore. We have every YouTube video and thing in the world. You can't hear this, friends. You cannot be known if you do not make your relationship a priority. That's the key word here, is priority. What are the things that kill priority, the, the, the priority of our marriage relationship? First is probably kids, right? 
kids. Um, I think work prevents this. I think our hobbies prevent this. I think too many times the thing, our hobbies are a bigger priority than our marriage is, which is a problem. And I think money prevents this. We'll spend money on all kinds of things, but to cultivate a friendship with our spouse sometimes gets like the last resorts of. So kids, jobs, hobbies, money. Which one for you is the highest priority? Which one for you maybe has overtaken that marriage relationship? The greatest thing for your kids is for your kids to see you and your spouse have a lifelong, loving, covenant friendship and marriage. That's one of the best ways you point your kids to to his gospel, to see reunion with each other. But sometimes in the everyday kind of things of life, these other things just chip away. That's the word. They chip away and they chip away and they chip away. And there's a yes here and a yes there and a yes here and a yes there. Last night, um, my wife wanted to go out with a friend. And I told her no at first. Um, <laughs> I'm not a dictator, but um, it was that morning, a friend sent a text. Hey, they want to go eat. And um, I, s- <laughs> I said, tell her to go with her husband. <laughs> I was like, you're my friend. And, and she was like, and then she, she rephrased it and said, I would like a night away from the kids. I said, okay, go. That's fine. Um, there is this sense that sometimes we prioritize just other people. We get away from our kids by going with other people. Tracy does not do this. I'm not like I'm throwing her under the bus right now. Tracy does not do that. Um, but we like will get away from our kids by going out with our friends. Does that make sense? And what happens is uh, the fun version of us, the relaxed version of us, the clear version of us goes to our friends and not to our spouse. And listen, we all need friends outside of our spouse. I am not saying that. Um, but the priority of a marriage friendship must come first. So what makes this happen? What, what makes us have this consistent quality time? It's priority and it's planning. It's priority. You've got to prioritize. You've got to probably put the stake in the ground and say, this is what we are going to do. And it only happens as you plan it. And I'll just, I'll just speak to our men for just one moment. Part of your role in leadership and, and headship is that you're the one that says this is the priority. Leadership sets the agenda is what it does. And if you're not setting the agenda for your home that says that my spouse is a priority, they will not be a priority, right? And so we must be the ones to prioritize and plan. Put it on the, ca- on the calendar, put it on the schedule, text your spouse, make it happen. We're all functioning adults here. So for us to be fully known, we have to deal with our sin, and we need consistent quality time. But we don't want it to be fully known, we want to be fully loved. We want to be fully known and fully loved. Because part of the beauty of our union is that as we grow in knowing each other, we do also grow in love for each other. This is Paul's message in Ephesians 5, when he says that marriage is the gospel metaphor for Christ's love for the church. That part of the expectation of our union is that there is this great love. So what does it it look like? 
I think first we need to define love. Here's what I mean. I say that I love uh, Reese's peanut butter eggs, right? But I'll say I love my wife. And so those can't and shouldn't be on the same level. So we have to define love. And people define love today in all kinds of ways, don't they? All kinds of ways. But when we aim this word love at people, a lot of times the way the world describes love, we describe love, can be very similar. Because a lot of times when the world says, or even we, when we say we love someone, we mean this. We mean we have deep feelings of affection because they make us feel alive all over again, like a Reese's peanut butter egg. (laughs) They give me these deep feelings of happiness. They make me adventurous. They make me brave. They make me happy. That's what love is, the world says. See, love, by this definition, is pure unfiltered emotion. And here's the key. In that, our role, your role in love is passive. It's a passive thing. It's something that happens to you. Think of the phrase falling in love. It's like tripping over a rock or a curb. And it's fantastic, right? You fall in love with your spouse. It's this whole courtship kind of time in your life, it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun thing. But there is a dark part to this. And just in relying in this kind of romantic love. Because if we can fall into it, then we can fall out of it, can't we? Now listen, if you're dating someone and you fall in and out of quote-unquote love, that's not a huge deal. Now it might affect your heart long-term, that's a different story, but as far as a covenant relationship, it's not a huge deal. But when you're married, it's a much bigger deal. Because Jesus said, what God has joined together let no one separate. The world tries to say that Jesus talks nothing about love and sexuality and gender, but he does. Because God brought man and woman together, and what brought them together, let no one separate. Marriage is for life. So how does the Bible define love? Well, uh, one of the apostles, John, uh, the beloved, as he says over and over in his gospel that he wrote, he wrote a letter, uh, 1 John. 1 John 4.10 says this. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, John's definition of love is blatant and clear cut. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Love equals Jesus on the cross. That is love. That's the picture of love. That's it in black and white. If you want to know what love looks like, don't look at a dictionary. Look at the Jewish prophet Jesus on a cross. That's the greatest definition of love. Now, hearing that, hearing about Jesus being on a cross does not sound like some deep, feeling of affection. He wasn't getting the warm fuzzies as he did that for us. Now, I believe that in that moment that he died for us, that, or even as he washed the disciples' feet, that he felt some level of emotion at that time. We're emotional people as humans, right? But it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Love is emotion, but it's got to be more than that. It's more than just an emotion. 
See, John uses that word love as both a noun and a verb. This is love that he loved us. It's a noun and it's a verb. When it comes to the feeling of love, you're always in the passenger seat. Your role is passive. It's like something happens to you. But with the action of love, you're at the wheel. That's much different. Your role, our role, is active. It's something that we do. So we love our spouse. We are not primarily saying they make us feel happy. We're primarily saying that we're going to love, we're going to actively love and serve them. When we say we love you, we often mean when I'm around you, I feel happy. You make me feel better about myself. I feel comfortable in my own skin. That's not all bad, but you don't have to be a psychologist to figure out where that leads. Love, the action, the verb, is a whole other story. At its core, love, as defined by Jesus on the cross, is self-giving. It's giving yourself over to someone else. And that is, no, that, that is the most true area in our life is with our spouse, where we give ourselves over to them. In marriage, you don't fall out of serving. Love equals serving, and you don't fall out of serving. You choose to live a life of serving. Yesterday, I'm walking um, my stupid dog, and we're outside. It's a beautiful day. That's the only reason I walk, and it's so pretty outside. Um, he's pulling me, and he's making me mad the whole time. And, you know, you go outside sometimes. I'd been reading the Word that morning, and... Uh, as I'm kind of, you know, angry at the dog and, you know, mad at my kids because I have a dog a little bit. And it's, he's, I'm stuck with him. Like he's until one of us dies, it's, it's, we're just there. And so, um, and I remember God just reminding me that primarily uh, the role in my house is to serve. And he said, you need two things in the middle of that to survive. First, I have to surrender every day. What's the prayer in, in, in the Lord's Prayer? Not your will, not my will, but your will be done. There is a, listen, for you to love your spouse well, and men, I'm going to speak to you for a moment because Paul says in Ephesians 5, he puts the onus on the men in this. You have to surrender your will every single day. In a sense, I don't care what your spouse has done. I do care because I love and I want to pastor you, but that is not primary. What's primary is what God has put on us that's to surrender our will. It does not say, if your spouse does this, surrender. No. Surrender, serve, right there in the middle. And for me to walk in that kind of life, I need a third F. I need self-control. Because if, I, if, if I'm not careful, I will fill life with things to serve myself. Whether it's hobbies. It could be, it's a plethora of things, and you're just like me. We have to surrender, serve, and practice self-control to truly lead and love in our home. So if love is serving, we must commit to a lifetime of serving each other. We must make a spiritual practice of serving our spouse. And, you know, the way Jesus defines service is it's not what your left hand, know what your right hand is doing, right? So we, that means we serve our spouse 
without expecting anything in return because our reward comes from who? Our Father. And this kind of spirit, I will tell you, it cultivates something supernatural in your union, in your home, in your friendship. But to make this habit, you know what it requires? It requires communication. Because you need to know how your spouse wants to be served. How do you do unto them? How do you serve them? It requires deep Holy Spirit work to give you a servant's heart. This everyday surrender to the Spirit's will. Three, it requires sweat. Serving your spouse and doing stuff you don't want to do will be hard. I don't like to fold and put up clothes, but when I do it, my wife feels loved. It's that simple, right? And there's always dishes and laundry to do, which means there's always a way to love and to serve your spouse. And it's this, when this, you know, you have these moments in your life where it's like humming, right? Where Saturday night your wife goes out and you make sure you clean the house. And your wife gets home at 10 p.m. and maybe you're already in bed. And she's like, oh, she's just thankful for you. And the next day you, you go to church and you worship God. And you come home and your wife says, hey, just go sit on the couch. I'm going to fix dinner, fix lunch. And, and your wife brings you a plate. And, and there is what's happening there is this beautiful picture of servant friendship, right? Where you know how your spouse likes to be loved and served. Your spouse knows how you like to be loved and served. And the world sees this. And like, what in the world is going on here? Right? Because we have surrendered our will to God. That's the key tier. You're not surrendering your will to your spouse. Does that make sense? You love your spouse. You give your will to God. Right? If we get that backwards, our spouse becomes a God, and your spouse can never handle that. And I've got to finish, so I'll give you all time to hang out. God, I'm sorry. Um, all right, I'm going to stop right now. Um, I hope this has been an encouraging series, a uh, few weeks for you. Uh, you know, one thing, if, you, if, if you're like in a place in your life or your marriage or just in your walk with God, and, and you need just an outside voice of counsel and pastoral perspective, I, I am here. I love you. I'd love to sit down with you. I've already said with some of you, so I would encourage you, maybe help out any way that I can. That is always there as an invitation. But um, I'm going to pray, and I'll give you all directions on our next steps here.